Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Hi, everyone. Today we're going to talk about uh, one of the most important rules in treating the gastrointestinal tract, which is the concept of working north to south. And um, this is really important because when you look at how people that suffer from gastrointestinal issues, whether it's inflammatory bowel condition or leaky gut or intestinal um, you know, permeability or they have chronic bloating and distension or they have uh, chronic constipation, irregular bowels, it really doesn't matter. There are some physiological steps that have to take place for the gastrointestinal system to work properly. And um, what I want to do in this talk is really share with you those things. So what happens, unfortunately, in the healthcare system is people just get like put in protocols and programs and and they, they've put together different theories, but there's just some basic concepts of physiology that you really want to understand when you're looking at the gut and how the gut works. And some of these principles are related to the physiological steps that have to take place for a person to have normal digestion. So when you look at how our physiology works, you know, we have a system where we start with chewing food, producing saliva. This triggers a lot of um, specific responses that we'll talk about. Then we swallow. Then we have peristalsis, the contraction of food muscles of our esophagus and intestines. Then the food gets into our stomach. And then we have to release hydrochloric acid. And then hydrochloric acid starts to break down proteins, but even more importantly, it creates an acidic environment for when food passes from the stomach into the small intestine, that acidic pH then causes the pancreas to release pancreatic enzymes so we can then produce um, enzymes to break down starches. And then we also have the acidity that's that's released from hydrochloric acid in the stomach that gets into the small intestine, uh, also then causes the gallbladder to contract so we can release bile to break down fat. And then from there, a whole series of steps take place between absorption, digestion, and motility that we'll get into in a second here. But this normal this normal physiological mechanism of chewing, gut movement, peristalsis, releasing enzymes is really, really important. And this is why, if, for example, if you have uh, an imbalance in your gut and you just jump into probiotics, you may not get anywhere. Like if you have an underlying gallbladder issue, you may never fix your gut with a probiotic. Um, if you have underlying issues with the initial steps of enzyme production and digestion, you may never really fix um, a leaky gut. So the way the gut works is that there's certain physiological steps that are absolutely required for the gut to work properly. And what I want to do in this this talk is share with you uh, some of those talks, um, some of those steps. Uh, I will also let you know that we are launching a gastrointestinal gut program uh, early uh, 2021, where we will have an online program at Dr. K News, DRK News, where we will uh, teach people how to really walk through all the steps. Um, and one of the section of that is this concept of north to south. So let me just give you the key concepts uh, today about that. So one of the first things to really remember is in order, in, the, the minute you see food, the minute you smell food, um, especially if you smell it and you can associate that with the thought of eating it. So for example, right now, if you think about eating something really, really sweet, your pancreas actually is already going to start releasing insulin. If you start thinking about eating something that's a little bit bitter or eating something that's very high in protein, um, your physiology already kicks in and you start to release a little bit of hydrochloric acid. So um, the thought of looking at food and smelling and appreciating it really starts to digest a process to begin with. So, and one of the key things is just saliva production. I think uh, if you really look at... Um, your mouth and next time you eat and then look at your food, you'll realize your, your saliva production starts happening when you start thinking about eating food. And saliva production is really the first initial step of this north to south concept that you have to produce saliva not only to start breaking down your food, but the production of saliva really means that your brain uh, uh, is really engaged in starting this digestive process. So the way our brain and nervous system is set 
and put together is um, the concepts of chewing and digestion are all taking place with the lower parts of our brainstem. And the lower parts of our brainstem, um, mid to lower parts of our brainstem, we have what are called cranial nerves. And there's cranial nerves that are involved with chewing, like mastication, uh, number five. There is uh, cranial nerves that are involved with producing saliva. They're called the superinfratory salivatory nucleus. Those are cranial nerve seven and nine in the lower brainstem. And the cranial nerve 10, which is the vagus, which is, and, and the cranial nerve nine, which is the glossopharyngeal, which allows us to swallow and to have motility. Now, these nuclei, the way that our brain and bodies are designed, are all on top of each other. So when one starts to fire, the other one starts to get, it, get activated. These are called phylogenetic homologs. So in any case, the minute we start to chew, we're actually initiating our brainstem to fire into collateral centers that allow us to produce saliva and also to activate centers in our brainstem that help us swallow and activate centers in our brainstem, which activate the vagus. And once those centers get activated, you get blood flow to your gut and you start to uh, have the... Uh, levels of threshold for neurons to fire to help release digestive enzymes. So that whole process actually starts with um, chewing and the and production of saliva. So what you have to understand is that your, your, your ability to see if you're producing saliva is letting you know if those systems are engaging. Now, there are times where some people have difficulty with this. Now, if you're noticing that you're always the last person to finish your meal, then you may have some saliva production issues or if you notice you have a dry mouth or you have to have lots of water to finish your meals and especially if this has gotten worse over a period of time. And it's more than just um, not having enough saliva. It lets you know that this whole feedback loop may be involved to some degree. Now, there are some conditions where it's not the brain pathways that are involved with this, but it's really just the saliva glands that are not working. Certain patients that have autoimmune diseases, uh, conditions specifically called Sjogren's syndrome, which is a common thing with other autoimmune diseases like Hashimoto's or rheumatoid arthritis, where they actually have antibodies to um, their um, saliva glands, so they produce less saliva. Uncontrolled diabetes can lead to lowered saliva production. Lots of medications, uh, hypertensive medications is one of the most common ones, lead to reduced saliva production. But once saliva production is reduced, now you have to realize you're, you're cutting down on this initial step of this north to south. So chewing um, is really, really critical. And it lets, lets you know that you know maybe uh, it's not just having to take a probiotic, that you really have something going on with this north to south uh, mechanism. So saliva protection, saliva production is, is really a critical part of, of function, and saliva production will also then, you know, start to release amylase. There's some digestive enzymes in amylase, which helps with starch breakdown, and then there's some immunoglobulins in saliva that start getting the immune system ready for exposure to proteins. So when you talk about north to south, it's this, this chewing response that's there. Now, that's this uh, chewing and swallowing and, and uh, saliva production. Now, one of the red flags that something is wrong with this initial mouth to the gut situation also, besides the lack of saliva production, is inability to swallow. And, you know, one of the things I see in my practice working with chronic patients over the years is some patients really just have difficulty with... Um, um, swallowing, they'll say kind of, they'll say things like, "Hey, can we can we use powdered supplements or liquid supplements instead of capsules?" I really have a hard time swallowing capsules, and those types of, those types of you know presentations really make you question what's happening with the brain gut connection, the vagus. So the act of swallowing takes place by the glossopharyngeal nerve and the vagus nerve. So if they have swallowing issues and they also have issues with intestinal motility, like they always have constipation, they always have to take laxatives, um, they're not digesting their food very well, um, they can see you know, stool floating, for example, they may have some issues that are unrelated to their bacteria or their microbiome, they just may not have neurological input to their gut. And this is part of the whole vagus response. So, you know, when we look at people that have chronic gut issues, some people have chronic gut issues because of this north to south phenomenon. And one of these phenomena involves the activation of these brainstem areas and how activation of these brainstem areas really sets the place for producing saliva, uh, chewing, swallowing, and then having um, food move all the way down from the esophagus to the small intestine to the, um, to the stomach to the small intestine to the large intestine and, and then fecal elimination. So... One of the things you always have to consider with chronic gastrointestinal symptoms is, are there issues with swallowing? Are there issues with chronic constipation? And if there are, then you're thinking about what's happening with that upper brainstem area.
And one of the most common causes of this is early neurodegenerative disease. So early Parkinson's disease. So if you see those symptoms with like um, stiffness and rigidity, forget tremors. Tremors take many years to show up, but, but stiffness and rigidity and slowness, slowness of movement, slowness of gait, like walking, slowness of playing sports, uh, slowness of mental thought. Uh, so slowness and stiffness, rigidity in combination with swallowing issues uh, and chronic constipation is a red flag for early Parkinson's disease. And it's very, very common. It's the second most common neurogenic disease. So that's the concept of north to south, right? So this whole chewing, swallowing, peristalsis issue. Then once you, once you get past that and as you move from north all the way down, and a person can produce saliva, a person you know, has no problems with swallowing, food goes down, there's no motility issues, and then eventually you know, the food you eat is going to get into the stomach. And one of the key issues is you have to produce hydrochloric acid. And if you produce hydrochloric acid, that really sets up the stage for everything else to happen downstream. It's kind of like a domino effect. One thing has to happen to let the other things happen in a normal function. Now, if a person doesn't produce enough hydrochloric acid, first of all, they're going to always feel like they have a brick in their stomach after they eat, you know, uh, they'll feel like, um, and they may even really avoid foods that are hard to digest. And if it's hydrochloric acid issues that they're dealing with, it'll probably be protein. They may have an aversion to eating protein. They know if they have, uh, some, red meat or a piece of chicken or something like that, that's going to be hard for them to really digest. So they very, they very much limit their protein intake. The thought of eating something like eggs would be really too much for them because they're going to get really bloated and distended and feel like there's a brick in their stomach. So the symptom of having constant bloating and digestion when you, when a person consumes protein is a, is a major red flag that they're not producing enough hydrochloric acid. Now there's lots of reasons why people don't produce hydrochloric acid. We might have to do a separate video on that, but the, the, the key thing at that point is actually to start taking hydrochloric acid as a supplement. So as you go from north to south, the and you deal with swallowing and saliva production and everything, as it gets into the stomach, um, the very most important critical step there is that you actually have hydrochloric acid uh, levels that are normal. Now, those hydrochloric acid levels are going to do, uh, hydrochloric acid release is going to do several key things for the gut. One of the key things that it's going to do is besides breaking down protein, it's going to then create the acidity that then triggers responses in the rest of the gastrointestinal tract. So hydrochloric acid will then create a acidic pH. That acidic pH will sterilize the rest of the gut. So you are less prone to have bacterial overgrowths and yeast overgrowths and be able to fight pathogens. And then hydrochloric acid is breaking down protein. And once it goes from the stomach, so as it goes from north again to further south, food goes into the small intestine. And in the upper part of the small intestine, uh, the duodenum, you're going to have some reflexes that are gonna be triggered by having enough hydrochloric acid. And the next reflex that gets triggered is the release of pancreatic enzymes. And if your body is not properly releasing pancreatic enzymes, you may notice severe bloating and distension, not with proteins, but really with starchy foods. So if you eat a potato and you get severely bloated and distended, um, or anything that's, that's also very high in starch, like rice can really get you bloated and distended, those are, those are indications that you may actually have um, some issues releasing pancreatic enzymes. Now, if you see that in combination with protein issues where you can't tolerate protein very well, then you might just start with taking hydrochloric acid and you also treat north to south. Sometimes when you start top down, you get changes in everything else. Now, if you have an issue with um, fat, like if you notice if you eat anything fried or you eat anything high in fat and you get really bloated and distended, that's, that's letting you know that the gallbladder is not working well. And a lot of people have what's called gallbladder sludge. It's an actual medical term. It's what you find with ultrasounds. And gallbladder sludge is a condition before gallstone formation. So what happens is um, there are um, a pre-gallstone stage that takes place in the gut. And when, when the gallbladder gets all sludgy, it's inefficient in releasing bile into the small intestine and you need bile to break down fats. So when that happens and you have all this fat in your stomach and your, your gallbladder is struggling to, to break it down, you can get really, really bloated, really, really distended. And that bloating and distension, especially with, with, with fats and gallbladder issues, can make a lot of people burp. So another major indication that there could be issues happening with the gallbladder is just this constant burping after meals, uh, lots of bloating and distension with anything that's fat. There's some people that have gallbladder issues within, within 10 minutes of eating something that's really fatty, they get severely bloated and distended. Now... You have to understand that 
the first thing to understand with this north to south is trying to figure out which part of the system is involved. So the, the key the key way to understand how enzymes work is if if protein foods really cause you to get bloated and distended, you're you're gonna think that hydrochloric acid may be the most important thing to consider. If starchy foods like rice and potatoes and yams and foods that are very high in starch get you bloated and distended, that's really a pancreatic enzyme issue. If fats cause you to have distension and bloating and you have an aversion towards fatty foods um, because of how it makes your gut respond, then um, that could be a gallbladder issue. Now, if you have a pancreatic enzyme issue or hydrochloric acid issue or a gallbladder issue, you're never going to be able to fix the microbiome. It's just not going to be possible. You can take a cocktail of every single probiotic that you really want to take or try. You can read all these cool different supplements people take to try to get different types of bacteria in their gut. Um, it's not going to have much of an effect. So you have to actually break down food, release proper enzymes to really have a response. Now, I will tell you, the single most overlooked gut issue, especially in women, um, is gallbladder issues. There are a lot of women that have gallbladder issues. And they just basically learn to live around it. They just stop eating fatty foods and they don't eat fried foods altogether. And they just think, well, I'm eating those because they're bad for me, which they are. But the problem is they can't tolerate them. So, you know, there's some degree of health to be able to handle, let's say, some fried food and you don't feel totally fall apart. But if you eat something that's fried and you totally fall apart, that's a strong indication that the gallbladder is not working. So a lot of, a lot of, patients I've seen over the years have never been able to fix their gut because they have a gallbladder issue. There are some people that are just focusing on probiotics and not really working on their enzyme responses and enzyme issues. So the concept of north to south, you know, <clears throat> starts with these steps <clears throat> all taken in place for everything to, to really work. So as a review, you eat food, first thing north to south, you have to produce saliva. As you produce saliva, you actually engage your brainstem to activate other cranial nerves that are involved with swallowing and and activating also cranial nerve 10, the vagus, that then turns on blood flow, uh, enzyme production, and gastrointestinal motility. So once you produce saliva, you then, uh, which is cranial nerve 7 and 9, you then swallow, which is cranial nerves 9 and 10, then your vagus nerve activates, so you have gastrointestinal motility, food gets into the stomach. As food gets into the stomach, the stomach distends, there's a release of hydrochloric acid. That hydrochloric acid is then going to break down proteins. It's going to neutralize the GI tract for uh, pathogens. And it's going to then trigger the pancreas to release pancreatic enzymes to break down starch. And then it's going to stimulate the gallbladder to release bile. And now everything is working in a normal, healthy response. So breakdown of any part of that is going to cause chronic GI issues. And this is like why people that just jump into a leaky gut protocol and avoiding every single food and just taking lots of glutamine are not going to get better if these things are going on. Um, now, once you get past the, you know, all these digestive enzymes things working, the next part of north to south is in the, in the small intestine, you have what are called microvilla, which are these kind of shaggy like compounds all throughout the gut, which are there to absorb nutrients. So those microvilla have to be healthy. Chronic inflammation in the gut can really impact those um, microvilla from from being able to absorb nutrients, and uh, and also um, they're critical for uh, healthy um, absorption of immune proteins that are not undigested, so it doesn't trigger an immune response. And this is where the concept of a leaky gut comes in. The, the gut permit the gut. Um, intestinal wall, the tight junctions of the gut have to be have to be intact. So if they're broken, the so-called leaky gut, that creates a whole host of problems. And if you look at the north to south model, um, leaky gut is further north and south than treating the microbiome. So if someone has like a leaky gut or intestinal permeability, you're going to have a very hard time trying to take a probiotic to fix gut issues. So you really have to get the intestinal permeability under control. So when people have leaky gut and their intestinal tight junctions break down, and, you know, most common cause of this is just really a, a pro-inflammatory diet, a diet that's um, really high in sugar, a diet that's really high in carbohydrates, a diet that doesn't have enough vegetables in it, a diet that's not uh, anti-inflammatory. Anti-inflammatory means lots of olive oil and fish, and, uh, fish oils and uh, uh, antioxidant superfoods, 
whereas a pro-inflammatory diet is basically processed food, fat food, uh, fast food, foods that come in boxes or uh, bags, partially hydrogenated food. So if someone's like microwaving their food and then they're eating fast food and maybe they'll eat a lettuce from their salad, you're pretty much guaranteed to have some degree of intestinal permeability because your gut needs to have antioxidants and flavonoids and essential fatty acids that come from things like olive oil and fish oil and avocado to maintain its anti-inflammatory state. So if the tight junctions break down, that leads to an immune inflammatory response, which further perpetuates disruption in the microbiome in the large intestine and, and dysbiosis, and uh, really creates a systemic inflammatory response that then leads to its own host of issues. And then once once you go from north to south, and let's say leaky gut is not really an issue or it's been addressed, you start to finally get into um, areas of the microbiome where you have all this bacteria, the gut, the actual gut itself. And lots of research has been done in recent years about the microbiome. So in order to have a healthy microbiome, you have to have north to south functions all working before you get all the way into the large intestine and into the microbiome. And there's some degree of bacteria, of course, in the small intestine, but the large proportion of bacteria is in the large intestine. And the bacteria in the large intestine are really, really important to us because these bacteria have enzymes and these bacteria in the gut can break down hormones. These um, bacteria in the gut can activate flavonoids from nutraceuticals um, so you can have anti-inflammatory effects. Uh, bacteria in the gut can send messages to the brain. So when you think of bacteria, they're Bacteria is highly functional cell, functional, highly functional organisms that have their own sets of enzymes that help us with, with lots of uh, mechanisms that are involved with homeostasis or balance, so we can we can have ideal amounts of health. Bacteria in the gut can impact our inflammatory state. So you know when they when they've done all this research in this human microbiome project where they looked at bacteria, they didn't find one really significant bacteria that made a difference between health or. Um, disease. Obviously, there's some bacteria that's beneficial and some bacteria that's adverse, but didn't find just having good or bad bacteria alone as a cause for people to have disease. But what they did find, one thing in common with all people that were chronically ill, is that they lost their diversity of their bacteria. They didn't have a lot of bacteria. And, and this is where having a diet very rich in plant fibers and fiber sources really helps to build the microbiome. When you're looking at this north to south model, you have to swallow, you have to have vagal function, you have to produce hydrochloric acid, you have to have a healthy gallbladder, you got to produce pancreatic enzymes, you have to have intestinal tight junctions, then you get to the microbiome. And then at that point, at the microbiome level, this is where a diverse diet with lots of vegetables and fruits can really make a big impact on changing the bacterial species of the gut. Now, foods that really make a huge impact on the gut uh, microbiome are fermented foods. So pickles, uh, pickled uh, fruits, kimchi, um, sauerkraut, those things have tremendous impact on uh, helping populate the microbiome. Um, healthy butter, if you can tolerate it, has high amounts of butyrate. It's very important for the gut, but fiber itself has lots of butyrate, which is fuel to support the gut bacteria. So this is where you get into the diversity aspect of it. And this is where you have um, really uh, the goal for all of us. The goal is to really, for all of us, as we learn about research on the gut and human health, the healthiest microbiome, uh, the most diverse microbiome, seems to offer us a lot of uh, health benefits, a lot of protection, whether it's cardiovascular disease or neurodegenerative disease or just pain, inflammation. Um, the microbiome has really been shown to be critical. But if you just jump to the microbiome, which is always health, you don't get much clinical effects, right? So you see nowadays like people ordering tests to measure the microbiome and then they're told just to change your diet and things, things you know, magically work. They don't. So you have to understand that there's this north to south component to it and you want to go through through all those steps to really import that. So that's, that would say that's, that's really the goal of uh, the talk today is to really share that concept with you of north to south where there's a series of physiological steps that have to take place uh, until you can really have an impact on the microbiome. If there isn't proper amounts of pH, you can't develop a healthy microbiome. If food proteins aren't broken down properly, you can't uh, you can't impact the microbiome in a positive way. If the tight junctions are broken down, there's chronic inflammation in the gut, it's really hard to improve microbiome diversity, microbiome health. So those are all the key factors that involve the microbiome. Now, the last thing I want to say with uh, about this, there's always the X factor that can disrupt all of this north to south, which are like infections. 
there are some people that actually develop things like intestinal autoimmunity have celiac disease. Um, their 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 own subsets of this north to south uh, criteria uh, of healthy gut function, and, and um, there's also some genetics involved. Um, your microbiome will be influenced somewhat by your genes. So you know some analyses say about thirty percent of your microbiome is already predetermined by your parents. So they're gonna that's already there, and then the majority of it is going to be influenced by things that happen. Um, right from your birth. So w- when people have a vaginal birth or they have a C-section, they have different microbiomes. You can you can literally go to an adult today, do a microbiome analysis and with a high degree of prediction determine if they had if they went through a vaginal birth or a C-section based on the bacterial species they have in their gut. Um, heavy antibiotic use early on has an impact on microbiome for from for the few, for many years to come even into adulthood. Um, certain diseases that can that can turn on, like a metabolic disease, can change the microbiome from that point of on, like diabetes or thyroid disease, for example. And then the microbiome is impacted by where you live. They can, they, if they do a microbiome analysis um, of different individuals, they can, with a high degree of prediction, say, "Oh, you live in Northern Ireland. You live in <laughs> Africa," uh, based on the bacteria that's there. And many of that is by food sources that that support different bacterial species and not just the organisms themselves. So these are all the different variables and factors that really go into you know all the latest research microbiome and then the clinical reality of you can't just go treat the microbiome, you have to go north to south. So with that said, my lovely wife, uh, Dr. Andrew Reyes is here to help me. Hi, Dr. Cassia, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, how are you? Good. So with that said, I have a request. Okay. Can you please slowly go oh. over the cranial nerves you were speaking of and what they affect? Like redo your kind of when oh, you scroll, you have this. Because you're saying cranial nerve, cranial nerve. Do you yeah, know what I mean? And yeah. Sorry, I do speak. I speak. But that's okay. Just, okay. just if you can. When again, what, what, what kind of person really wants to know the cranial nerves? So. All of them. <laughs> Everybody. Yeah, okay. It's, it's so mastication is cranial nerve five. But look, look five. <laughs> and then there's two parts there's two cranial nerves that help produce saliva uh cranial nerve seven superior salivatory nucleus cranial nerve nine inferior salivatory nucleus and they're involved with producing saliva mm-hmm. and then the swallowing muscles the muscles the back of your throat those arches in, in junction with your tongue moving back to the roof of your mouth when those things contract you swallow and cranial nerve nine the glossopharyngeal branch controls that, those muscles. And then the cranial nerve 10 also controls the muscles back of the throat. And then 10 really controls the vagus. So five, mastication, chewing, seven, and uh, nine for saliva production, and then 10 for vagus. And then they're all lined up right on top of each other. So when you activate one, you activate other. So th- that being said, the, the concept of just chewing food actually activates all those brainstem centers together. That's how we're linked um, neurologically with these different brainstem nuclei. So when people are actually, you know, they say you should, you know, chew your food at least 20 times, and there's some truth to that because that starts to activate these responses so the breakdown of food becomes much more um, efficient. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so Jennifer's asking, um, how do you fix, quote-unquote, fix it, if you have large gallstones and all the symptoms, you're saying you can't fix things if you have gallstones. How do you fix the gallstones? Well, that's it. If you have if you have gallstones, your north to south has stopped. You have to fix your gallstones. Um, we have to do an, do, do an entire talk about gall, you know, right, yeah. lifestyle diet for gallbladder issues. I will say that in the um, upcoming course that we're, we're developing at uh, Dr. K News, DRK News, on uh, – the GI tract, which we'll launch in 2021. We'll have a whole section that really goes into all the details of dietary and lifestyle, but that's going to take a lot of time. It's beyond beyond this talk. But you have to you have to fix the gallbladder. Uh, if you don't fix the gallbladder and you don't have proper bile release, there's a lot of things that happen. And I didn't get a chance to mention this, but let me, let me go into a little more detail. What they found is that the gallbladder releases bile, and bile is definitely involved with breaking down fat. But bile that's released by the gallbladder doesn't just break down fat. Bile actually binds to what are called FXR receptors, and FXR receptors are fatinocytic receptors. 
these receptors modulate immune function and neurological function and vascular function in the gut. So bile acids released by the gallbladder aren't just to break down fat. They actually are signaling agents that then help control and modulate the rest of the gut. This is why gallbladder issue has such far-reaching effects on healthy gastrointestinal function beyond, beyond just, beyond just um, digesting fat. So um, now if you have gallstones, there's lifestyle factors that can promote gallstones or dietary factors that promote gallstones. Um, there's nutraceuticals that, that can be supported to, to, to impact them. And we also know that simply just uh, having the gallbladder taken out doesn't necessarily fix things because when the gallbladder gets taken out, now if you have a gallstone obstruction, I mean, that's a whole different acute crisis situation. But if you're just dealing with bad digestion issues, you did an alternate gallstone. If you get the gallbladder taken out, the cystic duct, the, the canal that became the gallbladder, pooches out and kind of forms into like a new type of small gallbladder. And then the, the symptoms continue to persist. So um, you have to realize there's going to be some degree of gut optimization you will not have in your colon, in your microbiome, until the gallstone is, is resolved. Okay, so um, Sean is asking... If one requires high quantities of betaine HDL or pepsin to digest their proteins for many, many years, does it suggest parietal cells are, da- are permanently damaged or can they be repaired? Someone's been on these things for a really long time. Yeah. That's a good question. So that, that comes up a lot in real clinical practice. You see patients that, like, they, they know they have to take digestive enzymes. And this is a scenario of hydrochloric acid where they just can't digest their protein, uh, their food, unless they take hydrochloric acid. And the question is, can they, you know, and we know that there's cells in the stomach called parietal cells that are involved with making hydrochloric acid. So why is that happening? So in a, in, a, in a clinical setting, you know, one of the things you, the first thing you have to think about is how old they are. I mean, if they're 70 versus if they're 20, that immediately changes things, okay? So we do lose our cells in general as we get older. As we get older, we do lose cell reserves. We do lose some parietal cell reserves. We don't have it efficiently for the rest of our lives, just like every other cell in our body. So as we do get older, we will have some loss of gastrointestinal enzyme production and output, just like we lose everything else. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you would expect some people, as they get older, they just may have to take digestive enzymes just because of age-related parietal cell depletion that happens. Now, if you see that in a 20-year-old, you're going, that, that's not normal. You shouldn't have a 20-year-old that needs hydrochloric acid. So the most common cause of that in young people is actually an infection with something called H. pylori. H. pylori is a bacterial organism that furrows into the lining of the stomach and suppresses these hydrochloric acid cells from being released. So you kind of have to look at the age and, and, and determine why that's happening. Um, but the point is, is if... Until you can figure out, and maybe you can never figure it out, um, you you have to take it. If it's if if you notice if you don't take it, you get bloating and distended. You have to compensate for your physiology in order to have a healthy healthy gut response. So there are some people that also have autoimmunity to their parietal cells. They get antibodies to their parietal cells, and they start to have destruction of those cells. And in the early stages, they don't have any symptoms of heartburn. But as they progress, they start to notice heartburn and ulcer-like symptoms that just don't respond to an acid medication. But in the early, early stages, they just lose hydrochloric acid function. There's also medications and metabolic imbalances that can, that can do that. There's a whole list of things um, as well that can impact them. But um, the, 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 ultimate saying, the, ultimate, the ultimate thing to think about is age first. And then if you can't, and sometimes you really just can't figure it out clinically, you just don't know the cause. And at that point, you just have to make sure the patient's taking it. Okay. And then to that as well, um, does taking exogenous digested enzymes downregulate one's own enzyme production? No. Okay. If you take your own, if you take that enzyme, you're not going to stop making your own. Now you could, now let me explain a few things. If you stopped eating fat altogether for let's say a month, and you just had your big fatty meal, your, your body may not be efficient releasing bile like it used to. It may take you a few days to, to get that system back into place. Same thing, if you completely have avoided all starch or sugar, I don't know, you're on a carnivore diet or something, like that, um, it's gonna take you a few days to get your body to readjust and readapt. Your microbiome is actually gonna completely change in that time period and your efficiency in releasing some 
some of your enzymes are going to be be a factor. So be aware of that. If you're used to taking digestive enzymes and you stop taking them, you may notice the first couple of meals are a little harder for you to to get adjusted to, but it's not going to suppress or shut down or through a main negative feedback loop stop that from happening. That's not how that's not how these gut enzyme reflexes work. Okay. Uh, Dina, what is the best way to check if one has enough HCL? What is the best way to test? To check if one has enough HCL. The best way to test is a diagnostic test called a gastric Heidelberg test, where you actually swallow a capsule that measures your pH stashed to a string. <laughs> and then the capsule will measure the actual pH of your stomach. And then the part of the test, you'll drink an alkaline solution. And that'll make your stomach tra- change the pH into an alkaline state. And they will measure how long it takes for the stomach to become acidic again. So that's a gastric Heidelberg test. That's the gold standard test. Um, it's not very popular. Not many people do it <laughs> much anymore. But if you want an objective le- test to do that, that would be the test to run. Okay. Okay. Um, Andrea, shout out. Um, are north to south issues different with kids for constipation? No. They're exactly the same. The kids kids have to have this north to south issue as well. Like if they scarf down their food and don't swallow, that's an issue. Some kids have developmental issues. They don't have neurodegeneration. Some kids have developmental issues. Their vagus and their gut pathways are not kicking in so well yet. Um, some kids have leaky gut. Some kids, you know, some you know, it's not, some things are not as likely. Kids typically don't have gallbladder issues and gallstones. That usually happens when you're older. But uh, kids definitely get H. pylori infections. That they impact their hydrochloric acid output. Uh, that's not uncommon. You see it all the time. The kids definitely get leaky gut from eating an inflammatory diet all the time. So all the same concepts apply. It's just some things are not as likely because of their age. Okay. George is asking, what are your thoughts on the GAPS diet, G-A-P-S diet? Um, his serious leaky gut, and he's not sure if GAPS diet with vitamin C will help can cure it. A lot of people benefit from the GAPS diet. You know, there's a point where you have to trial and error, and the key thing is... Did you go north to south? Did you just jump into the GAPS diet? Do you have enzyme issues? Do you have a gallbladder problem? That's the whole point of this talk. So, again, it's not, you know, the question of like, what do you think about this diet? You know, all diets have an application. Some people need to follow a FODMAP diet. Some people have to follow a GAPS diet. Some people have to follow a strict gluten-free, dairy-free diet. Um, so there's no rules. I think everyone's trying to find like the rule, like what's the best way to treat the gut? It's, it's personalized. This is the whole, you know, remember, we're in the era of chronic disease and chronic conditions all require, you know, in, in the best clinical scenario, personalized approach where each person is, is looked into a personalized approach. So for some people, GAPS diet will be effective for other people. It's not the right application at the right time for what, what they're going through. Okay. And, and that's a said all diets. Right. And speaking to that, people are asking, can you write out your protocol for fixing the gut? There isn't. Well, we are, again, we, we, so here's the thing. We constantly, we, you know, um, when I wrote my book, Why Is My Brain Working? It was a thick book. Some of you may have read this book. And we had a lot of people email us and tell us, like, this is a good book, but my brain's too compromised. I don't know how to follow the application and read it. It's good information, but I don't know where to start. So that, that led us to developing an online program called Save Your Brain Program, which is available at our website, Dr. K News, which was a step-by-step approach with videos and workbooks and recipes to teach a person how to go through all the steps to implement some of the key concepts in the book and, a, and a, also in a priority order of how, how to really support the brain. And that was great. And we had a lot of people that benefited from that course and uh, a lot of people had some direction and it, and it was kind of the next step from seeing something written down. So what I've realized is you can only write so much down and then there's a point where you just have to actually walk someone through it. So um, like I said, early 2021, uh, uh, January, we're launching uh, registration. I think February 1st, we're going to be starting the GI course, uh, uh, our GI module online at Dr. K News. And uh, it's putting the pieces of the gut puzzle together. I think it's something like that. I can't remember the exact name. But we, well, we're going to teach people exactly how to follow how to how to figure out what's going on from north to south. We have questionnaire forms. We have recipe books. And, and I think that is going to be the best application because again writing it down is is not translationable into real life what we're learning what we're really learning is you have to have people 
be walk through the steps, evaluate themselves to questionnaires, have clear diet and recipes and guidelines. And it's not the same. So you can't put everyone in, let's say, the same gut program. Like everyone, leaky gut. Everyone gets glutamine. <laughs> everyone has to avoid everything. That, that's not how this works. So it's, it's much more complicated than that. So we're, we're trying to simplify that and we understand the need for that. So um, check out Dr. K News, our website. You'll get signed up for a newsletter. If you sign up for a newsletter, you definitely get information for the course when it comes out. Okay. So Sarah's asking, if the objective is to treat from north to south, what are your thoughts on chewable amylase enzymes on treating the oral microbiome? No problem. So there's some people, you know, some people um, do better when they chew amylase, uh, chewable supplements, especially those that don't have a lot of saliva production. So there's some people that will take amylase, like amylase is a pancreatic enzyme, by the way. It's a pancreatic enzyme, but also an enzyme found in saliva, and it starts to break down starch. And amylase... Um, for some people, they notice that they, they just digest their food better when they do a chewable form versus taking a capsule form. So there is some degree of experimentation, but I would say if you're definitely having issues with digesting starchy foods like rice, uh, gluten-free compounds, <laughs> or uh, potatoes, um, and you have low saliva production and you chew forever, taking an amylase chewable might be a better idea for you. And you can experiment with one or the other and see what you prefer. Okay, Owen is asking, is it safe to do a home HDL challenge by test by taking beta HDL supplement and seeing how our body responds or no? Yeah, so we talk about this in the program also, but let me, let me explain a couple concepts. There are some people that when they take HCL will have significant reflux and burning sensations and ulcer-like symptoms. And um, they, so they have this intolerance to taking hydrochloric acid because it really burns their... Uh, causes a burning sensation. What that tells the, tells us is that they have a pre-ulcer or maybe a gastric ulcer that the gastric lining is really uh, thinned out. There's some inflammation there. And again, the common cause of that is H. pylori infections. But but when people are in this ulcer state, they may not be able to tolerate hydrochloric acid. So the easiest thing to do is what we call an apple cider vinegar test. An apple cider vinegar test, you just start with apple cider vinegar, take a couple um, tablespoons with your meal, and see if you burn. If you don't burn, you can take apple cider vinegar. And by the way, you can take apple cider vinegar instead of hydrochloric acid supplements. It won't be as strong as hydrochloric acid supplements. Some people will actually will notice some benefits, like the building distension. If you're building distension, by the way, go down with apple cider vinegar. You probably should take HCL. And then the question is how much. So if it doesn't cause any burning, you just increase your dose until you feel like you had the best degree of digestion. So if you took three capsules of hydrochloric acid and your building distension were still there, but it were improved, it was better, but not totally fine. Maybe if you take four, you feel better. But if you take five, it's no really better than four. So you kind of play with your dosage. So the doses of digestive enzymes are not based on body weight and they're not based on symptoms. They're based on your own you know, um, reaction to them. So whenever also you start any kind of digestive enzyme, you're gonna have to start with like one capsule and increase the dose until you get a benefit. Whatever that dosage is to maximize your bloating, distension, the sensation of having a brick in your stomach is the right dose. And then once you realize if you go past that dosage, there's no additional benefit. So that's how you figure out your, your dosage. And someone's asking, is the HCL burn immediate or will it come the next day? HCL is, is within the first the 30 to 30 minutes to an hour. Okay. Even sooner. Some people actually, some people I should say 30, it should be two minutes to an hour. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Jan is asking, um, so with the cranial nerves you mentioned, can you work on those nerves to, sorry, the speed just went away. Um, can you work on those nerves to uh, facilitate chewing, swallowing, sure. switching, that's sorry. So first of all, if we, if we go through those nerves, cranial nerves involved with north to south, first of all, chewing. I mean, the biggest reason people have a hard time chewing is they have the temporal TMJ problem. And, and they may need to get their TMJ worked on. There's uh, people that do muscle work for the TMJ muscles, which can relieve uh, their mastication issues. Some people will need to work with a uh, dentist working with DHA to, to, to help them uh, make, oh to give some uh, devices, okay. chewing devices, I mean, things they sleep with to help open up their TMJ capsule space. Some people actually need manipulation of their jaw. And let's just say TMJ body work <laughs> uh, to get the chewing to improve. And if they can chew better, uh, then they have greater function. Now, as far as uh, cranial nerves um, seven and nine saliva production, uh, 
there's really nothing specific. But remember, if you if you fire a cleaner of five, you're going to activate seven, nine, and ten. And then for cleaner of ten, there's a lot of things you can do. Um, in my book, uh, Why Is My Brain Working? We had a section on the brain gut access. And we talked about how to activate the vagus. And one of the things we talked about was gargling, singing loudly, using a, a tongue blade um, to activate the vagus by causing a gag reflex, even doing a coffee enema while you suppress your urge to have a bowel movement to activate that vagal response. So those are things I talk about in the brain book. Those are things we're going to be going over in the brain program. <laughs> and, I mean, in the GI program we're launching in January 2021, uh, so um, those are the key things. Yes. Um, so Deanna is asking, can you speak to a little bit more about H. pylori? So H. pylori is a most common infection in the world, and most people will have it more than once in their lifespan. <laughs> some people have it, and it will basically resolve on its own, and some people have it, and it just won't resolve. And H. pylori infections furrow into the stomach lining, and one of the effects of their normal pathogenic response is they shut down they shut down cells in the stomach to produce hydrochloric acid. Now, for some people, when they get H. pylori infections, they get an ulcer, um, and that's pretty obvious. So anytime someone has an ulcer, one of the standard things to do in a conventional medical workup is to get tested for H. pylori. But lots of people are classified as what they call asymptomatic H. pylori people, where they don't get an infection, they just get their hydrochloric acid shut down. And in those scenarios, um, they still would, if they tested for H. pylori, which can be done through a, what's called the H, your H. pylori breath test, where you blow into a tube and they measure uh, compounds of bacteria produced in your, in your breath to see if you have the infection. It can be done with a blood test for antibodies, and it can also be done with a stool test to look at the actual H. pylori antigen that could be in your stool. So the, there's conventional testing for H. pylori. They, once, if H. pylori is identified, that could be a reason why someone has... Um, hypochlorhydria, especially if they're the asymptomatic group. So in conventional healthcare, uh, they only will typically check for H. pylori when there's gastric ulcer symptoms. In more of a preventive medicine model, if we see someone who's got chronic hypochlorhydria, chronic hydrochloric acid need, it's not a bad idea to get tested for H. pylori to see if that's one of the causes of it. And the other key thing that's very interesting is what they found is that H. pylori that's asymptomatic can lead to lots of health problems over a period of time. They actually found that the H. pylori pathogen gets into the vascular system and there's several thousand papers now that it shows that it, it can increase inflammation in the arteries and be one of the mechanisms for arterial plaquing. So there's a lot of research now connecting H. pylori with um, cardiovascular disease. And then H. pylori, asymptomatic H. pylori people um, also have been found to have increased rates of gastric cancer because the infection itself causes an oxidative free radical response in the gut and in, in the vascular system. So the main two concerns with having H. pylori, uh, unrelated to ulcers, is that it increases risk for cardiovascular disease and for gastric cancer. So that's why sometimes just when you find somebody just has a chronic need for hydrochloric acid, it's a red flag that they may actually have an H. pylori infection. If, you're, if you don't have a gallbladder, okay. is it enough to supplement with bile acids, ox bile? If you don't have a gallbladder, um, which many people don't, uh, you remember your your cystic duct kind of pushes out, and you have like kind of mini gallbladder from that point on. You still, yeah, you may need to supplement with things like bile salts, um, betaine, uh, hydrochloric acid even can be very helpful. Um, lipase as a digestive enzyme can be very helpful, um, and you may need to do that indefinitely just to make sure you have optimal digestion of fat. Um, and that's just the way it is. Okay, Krishman's asking on a strict AIP. AIP diet for almost three years now. Yeah. All reintroductions have failed. What else could be the problem? Any recommendations? Uh, oh, AIP, for those that know, autoimmune paleo diet. So if you've been on autoimmune paleo diet for three years and you can't reintroduce foods, yeah, you can't reintroduce foods because you have autoimmune disease. Autoimmune disease is going to cause a hyperactive immune response. It's going to cause a person to lose their tolerance to some degree. Autoimmune patients should not expect that they're going to be on autoimmune paleo diet and then, okay, I've been on it long enough. Now I can have pretzels and beer and gluten and milk. That's not going to happen. There's going to, as you probably have noticed, your body is going to tell you, no, it's not even theoretical. 
um, I don't know, somewhere, I don't know which form or somewhere where people thought like you, you have to, when you go on autoimmune paleo diet just for a short period of time, that's not true. When you have an autoimmune disease, your immune system is different. Your immune system is hyper-regulated and you end up losing something called tolerance. And once you start to lose your tolerance, you start to have reactive activations to food. Now, there are some diet, nutrition, lifestyle things you can do to improve your tolerance, but it's not going to in most cases cause you allow you to be able to go back to your diet 100%. And we actually created another online program that's available now at uh, Dr. K News called the 3D Immune Tolerance Program where we teach the diet, nutrition, lifestyle things to to improve immune tolerance. So that could be something to look into. But realistically, if you have an autoimmune disease, um, you have to be an autoimmune paleo diet forever. It's just the way it is. Now, before people started using the term autoimmune paleo diet and we were talking about this many years ago, uh, what I would notice in my practice is patients would come in that autoimmune disease with their own food and Tupperware and their own bags, you know, because uh, our exams would be, take a long time and I always tell people bring their own food. And they would say things like, well, I had to make sure I stayed at a hotel where I had my own kitchen. I had to make sure I do this because I can't eat certain foods. I totally fall apart. And those food restrictions they had at the time is what we now call autoimmune paleo diet because the foods they couldn't eat were things like gluten, dairy, nightshades, lectins, um, pretty much grain-free. They're basically eating vegetables, proteins, and fruits, and so forth. So unfortunately, one of the drawbacks of autoimmunity is you have a choice. You either eat foods that are going to trigger autoimmunity or you don't. But when you stop eating foods that don't trigger autoimmunity, it doesn't mean it's going to make your autoimmunity reverse. It just means you're not going to have a flare-up of it. So... Anyways, long, long answer. Okay. Um, okay, Adrian's asking, can you please speak about the correlation of the gut and interstitial cystitis, female-related issues, and, and which of your programs could help to deal with that? I don't have a program for interstitial cystitis. Interstitial cystitis is complicated. Uh, and what they're finding is um, they suspect that many patients that have interstitial cystitis really have autoimmunity. They suspect one of the proteins called tropomyosin, which is the smooth muscles of the bladder that could be involved with interstitial cystitis. But interstitial cystitis, I mean, working with it, you know, I can tell you this. If I ever see a patient and their chief complaints of interstitial cystitis, I always go, oh, <laughs> because they're complicated. And there's a lot of trial and error that goes through, and uh, um, there's so much uniqueness from one person to the other. I don't have a good protocol or something like a, here's a silver bullet for you with interstitial cystitis. Ultimately, for some people, it's all, there's an autoimmune component. If they can control their autoimmunity, that can be somewhat helpful. Um, if you try anything, you might try the 3D immune tolerance for something we offer. I don't know if it's going to have much of an impact for your interstitial status at all, but at least it can improve your immune. You can look and learn strategies to improve your immune tolerance. And for some people, there's going to be specific food proteins that trigger interstitial cystitis. Um, now, we know that tropomyosin is a protein that's found in the, in the small intestines. It's also found in the muscles of the small bladder. They found, for example, shrimp has the identical protein sequence as tropomyosin. So for some people, they eat shrimp, it may aggravate their tropomyosin autoimmunity. There's a whole list of other food proteins that probably cross-react to tropomyosin and foods that are the target protein for interstitial cystitis, but no one studied them. And I'm not sure if anyone will in, in, because it's exhaustive, it's very expensive, and, and there's no one really providing grants to do it. So these are the issues you know, that are out there. Okay. Um, so, so people are asking about the H, the um, vinegar test, outside of vinegar test. Yeah. So um, they took it and their stomach felt fine, but the vinegar burned their esophagus. Um, it, can, can they do um, HCL supplement instead of the outside of vinegar to test for? Yeah, you can definitely do it. If you can tolerate, so if the if apple cider vinegar is just irritating you on the way down, yeah. then just stick with HCL. And if you can tolerate HCL, that's a great that's a sign because HCL is much more acidic than apple cider vinegar. It's much stronger. So... Just stick with that. I mean, uh, some people just don't like taking apple cider vinegar. They don't like swallowing the, the, the strong pH of it. Right. Can you list the test? It's just asking for the best test for the gut. The best test for the gut. Well, that's, the, again, that's, 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 a, that's a tough question. And just, um, so remember, if you're looking north to south, I mean, maybe the best test for the gut is to get a gallbladder ultrasound to confirm you have a gallstone. Maybe the best test for the gut is to look for intestinal tight junctions. If you have leaky gut, I like, for example, Sarx-42. Um, there's lots of labs that offer what are called comprehensive digestive stool analyses. Um, 
were they look at the bacteria count to look at markers for digestion and and uh, food assimilation. I like to use uh, in my with my practice. I like to use the one um, from Genova. They have a they have a comprehensive uh, digestive stool analysis that has, does a pretty good job of looking at digestion absorption markers, looking at healthy bacteria, adverse bacteria, doing a a map of uh, uh, their microbiome diversity and also looking for any kind of pathogens that may be there. So those are the most most common tests people use in functional medicine. Those are the ones I use in my practice. Okay, Robert's asking, does beta HCL influence methylation? So beta HCL, the HCL part of beta the HCL part doesn't influence methylation, but beta does. So methylation is the transfer of one carbon groups called methyl groups. And one of the essential cofactors there that everyone is focused on is B12 and folic acid, but betaine itself is one of the cofactors that can help with methylation. Um, so if someone has high homocysteine, that means their methylation is an issue. And a lot of doctors measure homocysteine these days because they find that homocysteine is a inflammatory uh, protein that can really injure blood vessels. So, you, so if homocysteine levels are measured and they're high, they'll put a person on B12 and folate because they help with that conversion of homocysteine to cysteine, which is by moving one carbon group out, it's called a methyl group. So the betaine has an impact on methylation, um, but not the HCL. Okay, perfect. Uh, will, you, will you say that Genova test again? Uh, the Genova, Genova test is, it's, uh, I think the the thing they call it the GI effects panel, it's basically like their comprehensive digestive stool analysis. If you look at Genova, okay. If you don't react to apple cider vinegar, does that mean it's okay for you to take? Yeah. If you don't, okay. Listen, taking apple cider vinegar seems to have a lot of health benefits. Um, it's not a bad idea to take even after your meals. It's 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 great. Okay. Then someone else is asking if you take digestive enzymes but you don't quote unquote need them, can you harm yourself? No. If you take digestive enzymes and you don't need them, not gonna harm yourself. And some people, um, some people that are really focused on their health, actually take digestive enzymes all the time just to help break down their food as efficiently as possible, so the, the highest degree of micronutrient absorption. So they don't have a need for it; they just take it, just like they would take a multivitamin. So it w- will not hurt you, and it may even optimize your micronutrient absorption. Gotcha. Is there a multivitamin that you would recommend specifically with those with autoimmunities, food sensitivities? No, I mean, I don't live in the world of just general, because right. I kind of live in the personalized medicine approach. So I don't have a general recommendation for an autoimmune supplement. Okay. Okay. Do all autoimmune diseases have a diet intolerance? Do all autoimmune diseases have a diet intolerance? Yes. Almost all autoimmune diseases have a diet intolerance. Because what they find with autoimmune disease that it's not just an attack against the tissue. The underlying mechanism of autoimmune disease is what they call loss of, to- of immunological tolerance. And what that means is, and what that, well, let me define Im- Im- tolerance first. Tolerance is your, your immune's ability to have an appropriate response to outside influences. Outside influences could be pathogens, trigger uh, food proteins. When you're looking at uh, autoimmune disease, the key thing is that they lose what's called tolerance. and and one part of losing tolerance where you get the attack against your own body tissue with autoimmunity is also a loss of protein tolerance, dietary protein tolerance. So virtually all autoimmune disease patients uh, end up with some degree of reactions to food proteins that are exaggerated. And they may vary from uh, person to person uh, based on various factors that we're still understanding, but they're not gonna be the same for everyone. We know that certain food proteins are very similar to the antibody produced in the autoimmune disease, which make it a big risk factor. Um, and the most inflammatory dietary protein we see in autoimmune diseases are without question, number one, gluten, number two, casein, which is the protein in milk, number three, albumin, which is the protein in uh, egg, uh, egg white. And uh, we see a lot of reactions to corn, and soy, uh, theoretically, maybe because of the GMO component, we don't know, but we do see a lot of corn soy reactions. And then followed by reactions to nightshades, which are like eggplants, tomatoes, followed by uh, other common reactions to lectins, which are things like legumes and beans and nuts and seeds. Those are the most common. You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. 
There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.